One dark night in hell, the devil was trying to think of a way that he could beat God in something, no matter how small. So he decided on computer programming. He, he studied it, he practiced it, he was confident that he was the perfect computer programmer. Then he lounged in the back gate of heaven and he said to Jesus, he said, you know, the devil can do some things better than God. Jesus said, oh, really? Like what? The devil said, computer programming. He said, Jesus said, I don't think so. The devil says, I can prove it to you. I challenge you to a computer programming contest. Jesus said, okay. So God the Father would be the judge. They would program all the way until the sunrise, and whoever had the best program was the winner. So the contest began, and Jesus and the devil are at their keyboards typing at light speed. I mean, sparks are flying from the computers. <laughs> hours and hours, and about 10 minutes before sunrise, the power goes out. And then they reboot the computers, and the devil has lost all of his work. He's cursing and screaming, and Jesus reboots his computer, and all his work is there. Father comes, and he says, well, Jesus is the winner. The devil says, not fair. God says, of course it's fair. Everyone knows that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We know that. But what does he save us from? What does he save us for? And how does he save us? John the Baptist uses two titles of Jesus. The Lamb of God and the Son of God. And these help us to answer these questions. Now the Lamb of God seems like a strange thing to call a man a Lamb of God. But the Lamb of God is a figure that goes way back in Israel's story. And the most significant is in the time of Abraham. So do you remember, Abraham wasn't, and Sarah weren't able to have children until God blessed them in their old age with their son Isaac. But then God asked something of Abraham, um, a very, very big sacrifice. He asked him to kill his son Isaac as an offering to God to show how devoted he is. And Abraham obeys. And as he and Isaac are walking up the mountain, um, Isaac is carrying the wood of sacrifice, and he asks his father. He says, Father, we, we have the wood, we have the fire, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Before Abraham kills Isaac, the angel stops him and says, don't want you to go through with it, just wanted to see. God wanted to see how devoted you were to him. Now, at that moment, they, a ram is caught in a thicket, and they use that animal instead for the sacrifice, but that doesn't really fit what Abraham said. God will provide a lamb. Okay, So there's this lamb that's going to come into the story at some point. Lambs were significant in the Mosaic Law, so there's a lot of different occasions and times and purposes of sacrifice in the Mosaic Law. Lambs were one of the animals that were sacrificed. But the most significant was the Passover lamb. So this was an annual festival that Israel celebrated, recalling their liberation from slavery in Egypt. And remember what happened as God sent the plagues upon Egypt. The last plague was the death of the firstborn sons. This was a judgment against Egypt for their idolatry, their oppression of the Israelites, and the Hebrews, the Israelites, in order for them not to be affected by this, 
what does God tell them to do? He tells them to sacrifice a lamb and put the lamb's blood over the doorposts of your house. And then the angel would pass over their houses, which is what happened. So they were spared. And that actually is what led, finally, Pharaoh to tell them to leave, to let them go. That's what liberated them from slavery. So we have in these two cases a connection. There's lambs and sons and salvation and sin. Now, the letter to the Hebrews explains that the animal sacrifice of the Mosaic law was only a symbol of sin being taken away. It didn't actually take away sin, but rather it pointed to the sacrifice which does take away sins, which is to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. On Good Friday, when Jesus was being crucified, not far from that spot in the temple, the priests were slaughtering thousands of lambs that were going to be used for the sacrifice, of, of, uh, were going to be used for the Passover meals for the Jews. Now, nobody asks lambs if they want to be sacrificed, do they? <laughs> they are unwilling and unknowing victims. And this is the big difference. Jesus is a willing victim. Jesus is both victim and priest. He is the one offered and the one doing the offering. And so the psalm that we sung, these words can be put in the mouth of Jesus. Sacrifice or offering you wish not, but ears open to obedience you gave me. To do your will, O God, is my delight. The essential thing that was pleasing to God is the doing of his will. Right? This reverses the source of sin, which is human rebellion, beginning with Adam. Right? So Jesus then is able to offer God to God the Father on behalf of all of humans perfect obedience. And what is God showing to us in the sacrifice? Because God is giving up His only beloved Son. This is the language that He used of Abraham. He says, I want you to give up your only beloved Son. But it is really God the Father who gives up His only beloved Son to what? Abraham was to prove his devotedness to God. Well, God proves to us how devoted He is to us in this sacrifice. We receive the grace of salvation which Jesus wins for us on the cross through his death and through his resurrection, we receive it through faith and baptism. John also calls Jesus the Son of God who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Son of God baptizes us with the Holy Spirit so that we become sons and daughters of God. And so we're saved from sin and its consequences. We're saved for being sons and daughters of God. In our first reading, it there's a personification of Israel, and Jesus is the personification. Israel as servant of the Lord. It is too little for him to only raise up the tribes of Israel. He becomes a light to the nations so that God's salvation reaches the ends of the earth. So God, God's salvation is intended to be universal, but it is still a gift that has to be received, and not all choose to receive it. Now, I want to talk about something a little bit strange in a very small detail, but I think it's significant. Jesus calls, I mean, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not the sins of the world. It's in the singular. And because we can think, right, of the world's sins, we can think, okay, all the things that people have ever done wrong, right, you just add them up and that's what the sins of the world are. 
But I think when we, the idea of sin of the world is something even broader. It's a condition of sin. It's a propensity to sin. It's all the effects of sin. Sin spreads. It increases. It multiplies. It is passed along in generations. How often do we see in families, even in our own families, things that we struggle with that are connected to sins from our parents or grandparents, right? And these get kind of passed on. Sometimes it's called a generational sin. And then we can see this built into cultures, into what cultures value and what they don't value. We can see this built into society and into its structures. Societies that are, that are, are, are warped, are not, are not structured according to the true value of things. So the sin of the world means that we are living in a broken world. We broken people. One image that you might think of for sin is like cancer when you have certain cells that begin to multiply uncontrollably, affecting one organ first and threatening the health of the whole body. Or a malicious computer code, compromising intended function of the program, threatening a system-wide shutdown. And so it's not sufficient, I think, for us to think of forgiveness of sins as all that we get, as if to say, well, I don't get punished for my sins, and... Uh, I don't have the guilt of sin. Jesus does much more than that. He takes away the sin of the world. He heals. He makes new. He creates harmonious relationship. And he gives life. There's a man named John Newton. In the 19th century, he was working on slave trade ships. In fact, he became a captain of ships that would take uh, slaves in Africa and and sell them in other parts of the world. John Newton was a profane and debaucherous man. In fact, he, he relished in, in getting people who were Christians to abandon their faith. But he had two experiences, near-death experiences. One was a ship caught in a terrible storm when he prayed out to God for help. And a second, a few years later, when he had a stroke that he recovered from. And through these, he was open to the grace of Christ, and he actually changed from the wicked man he was to be a sincere disciple of Jesus Christ. John Newton later became an Anglican priest. He took care, as priests do, of a community, but he did other things as well. He worked with William Wilberforce to ban the slave trade, to end the slave trade by England. And the second thing that he, uh, the second additional thing that he did which he was very prolific in, was he would write hymns. He would write songs. And maybe you've heard of one of these songs, Amazing Grace. John Newton was forever grateful for being saved from his wretched life of sin. Having been lost, he was found. Blind, he was gifted to see. Every Mass, we sing those words of John the Baptist. Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccata mundi. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let us approach him with full confidence in his power to save. Say to him from the depths of our hearts, have mercy on us and grant us peace. <laughs>